is Our American Stories, and I'm Lee Habib, and we tell stories about all the big topics of life here, love, work, faith, and of course, health. Here's our health editor, Jim Glassman, with our next look at healthcare in America. You're listening to the theme music of the Clint Eastwood movie, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, a spaghetti western about finding a gold fortune. But that title could just as easily have been describing health care in the 21st century. The good, well, patients are living longer and better than ever before. The bad, the system is so complicated that we don't have a clue how even the basic things work or cost. The ugly, well, some parts of the healthcare and government bureaucracies are comically absurd. You couldn't make this stuff up if you tried. We'll get into that later, but I promise you that there's more good than ugly. This What Happens When episode is what happens when a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer and she's only 30 years old. And it comes to us from our field correspondent, Stan Dye. Take it away, Stan. For all the things that have changed in America since 1980, the number one and number two causes of death have stayed exactly the same. And despite what cable news would have you believe, those chart toppers are not tropical infections or gun violence, and you know what? Not even evil clowns hiding in the woods. No, no, no. The first is heart disease, and the second is cancer. As I was looking around for cancer stories, I get the fun assignments around here. I bumped into a group called the Young Survival Coalition and a state leader named Julie Klasky. She wrote beautifully about her own fight against stage four metastatic breast cancer, a cancer that can be slowed but not cured. The kind of breast cancer that claims by far the most lives. More on that later. This is the sort of diagnosis that would send many people into doom and gloom mode, but not Julie. She wanted us to hear and share stories of young women fighting cancer. And within just a few days, Julie connected me with dozens of absolutely amazing ladies. Here's one of them. I'm Tori Guide. I am 30 years old. I live in Bell Fountain, Ohio. I actually grew up in Marion, Ohio. I graduated from Mount Vernon Nazarene University in 2009. I went on after that to go to Columbus State for culinary school and graduated in 2012. Tori then became a chef. And if you're lucky enough to have some chefs as friends, then you already know that they're all a bunch of workaholic maniacs who know how to have a good time. But just as Tori's career was taking off, this happened. I was 29, and it was a total fluke of how I found my lump. I actually was just sleeping and woke up and thought that I was laying on my cell phone. I was on my, laying on my side. I usually don't lay on my right side, but reached over. My phone wasn't there, but I found something hard. So I got a little concerned, but I, I wanted to kind of make sure what was going on with that. So my mom is actually a nurse. I went and had her 
feel it because I'm just like something just doesn't feel right. And I've I've had some cysts in the past, so you know you kind of talk yourself out of it of anything being wrong because you don't hear about people that are 30 years old or about to be 30 years old that have problems like breast cancer. No, you really don't. There are about 300,000 cases of breast cancer diagnosed per year in America. And the two most significant risk factors are biological sex and age. Women are at far higher risk than men. But guys, we're not in the clear. There are in fact 2,500 cases of male breast cancer diagnosed per year. But that's a whole different story. And like most cancers, risk increases with age. Tori's own grandmother had breast cancer, but it wasn't until well into her 60s. Now, Tori was nowhere near 60, but just in case, she went to her doctor to get everything checked out. I went in, saw my doctor that same day. That's one of the nice things about being in a small town, they can get you right in. She felt the area and said, you know, we, we really need to get you in and get this checked out and, you know, get, this, get these scans done and see what's going on. So my birthday was that coming up weekend, and I really was just like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to go do anything medical. And if it comes comes back that it is something, I want to be at least able to enjoy my birthday. And they only did the scans on Mondays in my town, so it, they have comprehensive days where they'll do the scans and they'll do the biopsies all on the same day. So. They, they wanted to do it on March 4th, but I was going to Nashville for my birthday. So I asked, can we just do it the next week? And she said, yeah, that's fine. Um, nobody was really expecting it to be anything, or if it was, it was supposed to be very early. So, you know, it, putting it off a week just so I could, you know, have my weekend and go on with my, my normal for a little bit was just something I, I really needed at that time. So I went ahead and put it off just for a week and went in on March 7th. I had the scan done. They went ahead and actually did an ultrasound as well and they they were concerned. Uh, the the radiologist that was there was also concerned and they they said, you know, you're gonna have to come back the next the next week to go ahead and do a biopsy. And my idea was, why wait? I'm already here, I'm stressed out, let's just get this done. Let's get it over with. So they went ahead and made some calls. I called my boss just to let them know because I was going to have to be off for a couple of days. And they they went ahead, did the the biopsy. It takes a week to get back. So I waited the week. Nerves were going, but they, they were looking at things. And they told me, you know, if it does come back as anything, you're young. It's going to be early stage. We caught it early. You're good. It looks really small. So there's, there's no way that it's anything major. You're good to go. I came back the next week on March 14th and they sat me down and told me that it did come back as breast cancer. Obviously, I, I was crushed. I cried. I still cry sometimes, but I, I just didn't know what to do. I felt completely hopeless. Like, everything in my world was just about to change because you see the images of the people with no hair and being sick and being emaciated and it's, it's those thoughts that were going through my head. And when we come back, more of Tori's story, our What Happens When installment, more after these messages.
is Our American Stories, and we continue with Tori Geib's story. She was doing great as a young chef, but then she found a lump, and her doctors told her it was probably early-stage cancer. Here's Stan with more of her story. After diagnosing Tori's lump as breast cancer, her doctors noticed something else. They said, you know, there is one other area we want to go ahead and biopsy that we saw the scans that was just really small that we just want to double check. And I was like, fine, let's go ahead and do it. So they went ahead and did that second biopsy and said that they were going to go ahead and send my information down to Stephanie Spielman, which is part of the James Cancer Hospital OSU. I got a call back about the second biopsy because we already knew I had cancer, so it wasn't necessarily a sit-down conversation at that point. The type of breast cancer that they said that I had, it was called invasive ductal carcinoma. They were expecting it to be really early. They're like, oh, you're, you're good. You're young. I ended up getting down to Stephanie Spielman on March 23rd and was seen by the doctor. Even then, it was very much, you caught this early. Things weren't bad. They went ahead and scheduled me to meet with medical oncology, too. And I'd been having pain in my back for probably six months. I worked as a chef, so I would be looking large bags and boxes and cases. So I was used to having a little bit of back pain with that. But my medical oncologist is uh, Raquel Reinbold. She really wanted to just go ahead and do those scans just to kind of confirm what was going on in that area. So we went ahead during the meantime and scheduled kind of the the beginning stage things that you go through with breast cancer. So we scheduled getting a port placement because I was going to be having to do IV chemo just to kind of shrink the area and give it some good margins on the tumor. So we were going to go ahead and place the port and get, get the basic things done while we were waiting for these scans to come back. So we did the scan and it came back that it was showing I had a lesion on my spine. And she's like, well, you know, it's probably nothing but let's go ahead and biopsy it just to make sure what's going on there. So I went ahead and I, it was actually two days after I had my port placement for my chemo. I went in and they, they did a scan or did the biopsy on my spine. And a couple days later, I got a phone call. It came back that the cancer had metastasized to my spine. So what originally everyone was telling me, you know, it's early, you're good, you caught it, you're young, you're going to beat this, suddenly became a death sentence just because... Once it metastasizes, it's, it's a whole different ballgame. There really is no such thing as a good news cancer diagnosis, but that word cancer still covers a very wide range of diseases and stages of disease that have very different outcomes. For example, breast cancer is actually very treatable when caught as stage 0 or 1, which is when the out-of-control cells are relatively few in number and have not spread. In fact, over a five-year period, women diagnosed and treated for stage 0 or 1 breast cancer have survival rates that are indistinguishable from women who don't have cancer at all. But stage 4, or metastatic breast cancer, is an entirely different animal. That's when breast cancer cells spread throughout the body and take root in new organs, wreaking havoc wherever they land. Remember that back pain Tori mentioned? Well, as she says... That's because there were breast cancer cells on her bones, turning those bones into Swiss cheese. Once a chef, always a chef. This type of cancer is currently incurable, meaning that even though there are treatments and drugs that can extend patients' lives by years, it is still a terminal diagnosis. Until the next great medical breakthrough, 
stage 4 breast cancer patients will die from the disease. It took a while for Tori's actual diagnosis to sink in. At the time, I think I was still kind of being a cheerleader with my attitude and very much, oh, I'm going to be okay, I'm going to beat this, I'll still be okay. But that was really before I learned about what what was going on in my body because with metastatic breast cancer, the average life expectancy is 18 to 24 months where most breast cancers in early stages are able to be treated or put into remission. There's no such thing as remission for stage four. So it, it was definitely heartbreaking, you know, going through all this and um, having those goals in life of, you know, I always wanted to be a mom and just not not having that option anymore because my, my cancer is hormone positive. Which means that when the breast cancer cells are around hormones like estrogen and progesterone from the ovaries, they grow even faster. So they had to shut down all of my, my ovaries so I'm not able to have kids. And we had to act so quickly because once they started getting in there and scanning and finding where all these places I had metastasis, it, it was just everywhere. Um, I actually have metastasis areas on my bones, my both of my lungs, my liver, and my kidney. And ironically, you hear a lot about breast cancer traveling through the lymphatic system and the lymph nodes. Mine isn't in my lymph nodes. My lymph nodes are fine. There's no inflammation. It's actually traveled through my blood. So it's a little bit different than some of the other types of breast cancers. And, you know, it it was it was a change of plan. That chemo port that I got, I, I wasn't going to be doing IV chemo anymore, which it was kind of a twofold thing because, you know, yeah, I was absolutely glad I wasn't going to be having to do IV chemo, but at the same time, not like this, not in the way that someone looks at you and tells you there's a good chance that you're not going to be here in three years. As Tori was struggling to come to terms with this devastating diagnosis, she had to help her loved ones do the same. It was very hard and having to tell my family and tell my friends and and even then um, just hearing from them being that cheerleader that I was before and trying to reach out to me and say, you're going to be okay, you're going to be okay. And really it's, it's not, it's not okay. And, you know, some, sometimes those types of comments, you know, you, you want to put on the face for your friends and family. You want to be, you want to be happy and you don't want to be the quote unquote dying girl, but you, you want to project that you're okay to your friends and family. And of course, the struggle wasn't just emotional. I was having some pain in some different areas. Obviously, my back, the, the primary area that they went ahead and scanned. Also, my collarbone, I was having a lot of issues. So they went ahead and scanned those. They actually found I had a broken clavicle and my T12 in my spine, so in the middle of my back, that bone was actually crushed. Um, it was broken and crushed. So they went in and did a procedure in my back to stabilize that bone. And then for my, for my back and for my collarbone, we did radiation treatment. They were okay at first. Um, they, at first I was like, oh, this isn't bad. I don't see what everybody's talking about. I'm not having burns, it's, it's all right. Until they started working on my back with the radiation. <laughs> um, I did 20 treatments altogether of the two forms of radiation. 
And by the end of it, I, I was so nauseous. The, the nausea was horrible. I wasn't able to eat regular foods for almost two months. As if all of that weren't tough enough, Tori had to do one more thing. I've had to quit my job because I'm not allowed to lift anymore. Can't do more than five pounds, so obviously lifting a 25-pound case to do foods is it's just not possible anymore. And it was a lot of concessions on my pride because I was always a very hard worker. I worked since I was 14 years old, at least part-time somewhere. And I was always very proud of that. I was a hard worker. And for me, having to leave my job and go on to disability at the age of 30, I was just like, what the heck is going on? This this isn't me. This isn't the life that I I wanted for myself or envisioned. And I went ahead and I, I conceded. I did what I needed to do because I wanted to get better. I mean, the, the best that I could be. And you're listening to Tori Geib. And this is our What Happens When series. And this 30-year-old, my goodness, what a voice, what courage. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about her saga. And for any of you who are suffering from cancer or have family who are or have had it, you're going to really want to hear the next segment. It's unusual. It's a story and a side of this story that you don't know and you've never heard. More after these messages. Tori Geib's story here on Our American Stories. Oh, yesterday came suddenly Why he had to go I don't know He wouldn't say I said back with more of our healthcare series, What Happens When, and our health editor, Jim Glassman, always on top of these things and Stan in the field uh, doing the groundwork. And this story is all about a young woman in Ohio named Tori Geib, who was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 30. She soon learned that she had the metastatic kind that spreads throughout the body and can quickly kill Tori had to quit the chef job she loved, and you could hear the pain. That was probably the unkindest cut of all. And then she had to turn her full attention to herself and her health. Tori turned the same incredible drive that helped her to excel as a chef to fighting cancer. She and her medical team quickly went from radiation and surgery 
to ongoing drug therapy. They went ahead and put me on an aramase inhibitor, which some people call it a chemo pill. It's not really a, a chemo pill. It, it's different. But it, the, the medication that they put me on after all of the radiation, and I was feeling a little bit better, I had had progression in my cancer. So my, my meds had been progressing throughout my body. I've been having a lot more pain in my back and my ribs. And they put me on this new medication that had come out earlier in the year. And I actually just had my three-month scans this past month, and my disease is stable. So what that means is that during the time that I've been on the medication from scan to scan, the disease hasn't been spreading. It's kind of maintained where it is, and it's actually gotten smaller in some of the areas. So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely thankful for that. I asked Tori to tell us more about these drugs that are keeping her stable. Now, they're not curing the disease, but they are buying time. Time for research and time for Tori to enjoy life. It's called Ibrantz. I'm doing that in and in another pill called Letrozole. So I take those in combination, and because I'm hormone positive, it, it stops the hormones in my body, and I also get a shot in my belly every month of two different medications to kind of suppress everything and all my hormones and keep those in check. So, I mean, there's definitely, there's a lot of fatigue with it. The nice thing with the pill that I take is I don't get to, I don't lose my hair. So I've, I've been able to keep my hair, even the, the pink streak that I put in before I was, thought I was going to lose it to chemo. And I was like, oh, I'm going to lose it anyway. I'll put a little bit of pink in there. No, it, it, it's still there. So, but I mean, that's, if that's the worst thing, I'm, I'm good. I mean, there's a lot of fatigue with it. The Met, they're painful, especially the bone Mets. They're very painful. But I started into palliative care a couple months ago, and they finally got me on a good pain control management. And it's, it's really been helping. With a combination of drugs keeping her cancer in check and her pain at a manageable level, Tori next had to struggle with massive government and healthcare bureaucracies. Because while the medical team and drugs were amazing, miraculous even, someone needed to pay for them. Here's Tori taking us back to an almost unbelievable conversation with a lady while trying to get onto Medicaid. I'm sitting across a desk talking to this woman, and she, she was in tears saying, I'm sorry, there's nothing that I can do for you. I wish there was. With being off of work as long as I had been, on disability, I ended up actually losing my health insurance coverage. And because of where I fell, because of my disability paying 60% of my former wages, I actually didn't qualify for any type of financial assistance for a lot of different places or with uh, Medicaid or any of those programs. And in my state, there's a program for breast and cervical cancer patients that helps them if they've been denied for Medicaid. It's kind of a little extra cushion. And I was denied for it, even though I have stage four breast cancer, because I'm under the age of when they consider breast cancer to be a problem. They don't cover anyone under the age of 40 for any reason, even if they have breast cancer. And for me, it was just like, what the heck? Because, you know, if, if I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm, I have stage four breast cancer and I can't get help from a breast cancer program because I'm not old enough. It, it was just crazy to me. It, it was just, it was very discouraging because all I could think about was how am I going to pay for my, my treatments? Because I didn't find out in a letter from my insurance that I had been dropped. I actually had 
my, my medication was supposed to come to me through the mail. It's one of the, the mail pharmacies. And uh, I, I didn't get my prescription in the mail. And I called the pharmacy. I said, hey, um, I just wanted to check and make sure because I didn't get my eye brands today. And they said, well, it, you don't have insurance and we can't send you the medication without payment. And I was just like, well, how much is it? And that's when they told me it'll be a little over 10000 for the month. And my heart just fell to my stomach. Like, I, I don't know what to do. And all I could do is I called my doctor's office crying and saying, I don't know what to do. Can what do you, do you guys know of anything I can do? And within an hour, I had a list of resources in my email saying, you try this, we'll try this, we'll meet in the middle. Because I knew that, you know, I wanted to be a participant in this. I wanted to work to, to find something. And in having that panic of, oh my God, I'm not going to have my medication. We you know, what if I'm a week off of my medication and my cancer progresses? Because that's a fear. If you go off your medication, it progresses and you can't go back on the medication. It's like, what's next? And, and it's terrifying. There were a lot of tears that week, just trying to figure things out and, and knowing that the, the insurance had actually cut off three weeks prior to when I got that medication, but that was the first thing that I had gotten that was billed to the, to the insurance that I would have received right away and not just gotten a bill in the mail from a hospital. Actually, during the time that my insurance had been cut, that I wasn't aware of it, I had a hospital stay for four days. And I looked on my account online after they told me that that had been denied. And I had $24,000 in medical bills. So there she was, a whopping 20 bucks a month too wealthy to get help from Medicaid and too young to get help from the Ohio State program. Hey, uh, did anybody copy the cancer on that memo? She was still facing tens of thousands of dollars in bills for life-saving drugs and care. And really, who among us could casually write a check for that amount out of pocket? Having worked and worked hard since childhood, Tori hated the very idea of a handout. But she knew that there's such a thing as misplaced pride. She called her doctor's office and played face-up poker. Tori explained her financial situation fully and honestly, and the great folks at the clinic immediately understood. They told Tori that drug companies have financial assistance programs exactly to help folks like her. And since that $10,000 a month life-saving iBrands is a Pfizer product, start with them. Their assistance program is called Pathways. And when we come back, we're going to hear about Pathways, and we're going to hear about Tori Guy. But my goodness, I know you're already in love with her because we are here. And what a story, and what a storyteller. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do, including our What Happens When segments. More often than not, they're a full hour because these are the stories that happen all of our lives. This labyrinth that we get caught up in with these rules that make no sense to anybody. Very complicated. But what a beautiful story this is. When we come back, more with Tori Geib here on Our American Stories. Our 
is Our American Stories, and we're getting to the last part of this incredible story of a young woman diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, the kind that kills. Tori Geib had to swallow her pride and stop working as the cancer spread through her body, but then Medicaid wouldn't help her because she made $20 too much a month, and an Ohio State program turned her down for being too young. Now let's go back to Tori taking us to the moment when she called the drug company itself for help. They make the product, keeping her cancer in check. But would they help with the mounting bills? When I applied through Pfizer Pathways, it was a really quick process. It was really humbling to to be able to call. And they were so amazing. They were so nice. It wasn't uh, another person calling to get something for free. It wasn't like that at all. They know that people that are calling are needing help, and you're already going through a tough time. They're not trying to make it harder on you. They were so kind, and they answered the questions that I had. And even when I said, I don't know if I'm going to qualify for this, they were encouraging, and they said, well, let's try. Let's see what we can do for you. And I appreciated that so much. I've had places that I've applied for for assistance that it, it wasn't the case and it was really difficult and really hard. When I applied for one of the programs, I got a letter back that said, um, well, it looks like you qualify for Medicaid, so you know, apply through Medicaid and see what they can do for you. And it was so frustrating because I had sent papers to them saying that I had been denied. And it's, it's because my income was so close to qualifying, it was, it was really... It was hard, and I had to go through that burden of proof with all of these different places. But I would say out of any of the ones that I worked with, finding help or finding assistance for prescription medications, Pfizer was absolutely amazing helping. From the moment that Tori realized that her drugs were being held up because she did not have the insurance to pay for it, to getting all of this worked out, only a week and a half passed. And Pfizer wasn't the only one that answered Tori's call. Her medical team was at Ohio State University, and OSU has a program to help pay the bills of patients needing a hand. Tori also spoke glowingly about her local Logan County, Ohio Cancer Society. I know the the person at the Cancer Society that I call, and her name is Jane, and I, I'll call her, and they, they help with my prescriptions that go through my pharmacy here locally. My my clinic is an hour away from my home. They give me gift cards for to help cover my travel expenses for each time that I go down there. I mean, it's it's amazing the type of things that are out there that can really help you because things add up. I mean, when you're going to treatment, when I was doing radiation, I was going an hour each way, five days a week. And that adds up in gas, especially when you're not working. So having programs out there that will help you cover those costs, it's it's amazing. And it's it's really it's really humbling and it makes you appreciate all of these different local fundraisers and these organizations that are out there. American philanthropy working exactly as it should. So what's Tori going through now? The treatment that I'm on is keeping me stable. So for right now, it's working and it's doing a good job. It's doing what it's supposed to do. It's keeping the cancer where it is. It's not letting the cancer grow outside of these areas. It, it pretty much, it's put a pause button on the cancer. But pause is not stopped. 
So eventually your body will learn how to get around these different medications and, and you develop immunities. So they have to change up your treatments. Obviously the goal is to try to be on the treatment as long as you can for each different type of treatment. We do scans every three months to just make sure medication's still working. We'll, we'll keep fighting this until we get to a point where the treatment's not working anymore. And then at that point, we'll hope, hopefully there'll be something out there by that point. But um, it's, it's scary when you see your friends that are, you know, 35 and under. When you see 19-year-olds getting this disease, when you see, you know, my, my friend that's 33 years old that's on hospice right now that has two kids, I mean, it's heartbreaking. And we, we need more. We need more research. We need more people that are advocating for research and donating to research and not just donating to awareness. I think, I think at this point, we're, we're very aware that it exists. It's, it's time to stop putting so much money towards awareness and putting more money towards research and finding the cures for this disease so that we don't have 10,000 people dying from this disease a year. I mean, it's, it's crazy and it's, it's heartbreaking and we, we, we need better. We need to get this and get it under control. Tori was originally diagnosed with cancer two weeks after her 30th birthday in 2016. When we talked later that year, she had nine fractures from the breast cancer cells spreading onto her bones. A few months later, that number had almost doubled. But the good news is that Tori is still stable on Ibrands. Her cancer has not spread. And all this time, researchers have been hard at work trying to find more pause buttons to slow cancer. And of course, the real goal, to find the stop button. She's finding new ways to manage pain, and she's still living a very challenging life very well. There's, there's no point in sitting around and feeling sorry for myself. Are there days where I'm like, why did this happen to me? Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I mean, there, there are definitely those times where I'm like, this sucks. I, I, I don't want to deal with this. I don't, I don't want to have cancer today. And, and there's some days where I tell my family or my friends that I'm with, I'm like, today, we're not allowed to talk about cancer. You know, today's a no cancer day. And, you know, so if they respect the rules, they get to hang out. If not, they're out for the day. <laughs> but... But you gotta, you have to set boundaries. And sitting around and and crying and feeling sorry for myself isn't helping me get better. And if it comes down to me only being here for three years, which is the average lifespan for a metastatic person, I don't want my friends and family to look back at those three years with me and say that I was down all the time, I was depressed all the time. I want to be like, she lived. She did everything she could do and more, and she lived. Like that's what I want to be known for. And thank you for that, as always, Dan. Great work. And Tori, what a voice. What a lady. And thanks, by the way, to Jane at the local cancer club, the doctors, the nurses. And thanks, too, to the folks at Pfizer. What a story and what a citizen. What a citizen of this country and what a generous citizen. And just didn't know that story. And we bring on now Jim Glassman, our health editor. And Jim, I did not know that the patient assistant programs that drug companies like Pfizer have account for 10 of the largest 15 U.S. charities in this country and provided $6.5 billion of support in 2014 alone. Talk about that. Yeah, it's truly amazing. I mean, I mean uh, you take a company like Pfizer, its patient assistance program 
shelled out last year about $700 million to help patients. And, and the reason for these things existing, these, these foundations, is the structure of insurance programs in the United States. Now, I realize Tory kind of fell in between the cracks, but there are a lot of people with commercial insurance that still have to pay many thousands of dollars a month for their drugs if it were not for these foundations. And, you know, insurance companies really ought to be insuring people against the worst calamities not to pay for the $10 that you have to that you would pay for a generic satin drug. It's kind of ridiculous the way these things are structured. But that's the truth. And that's what we worry about, Jim. We all worry about that catastrophic bill. We don't Absolutely. worry about the 10 bucks and the 50 bucks. That's not why I have insurance. Let's talk about the the prospects for for Tory. We were talking off break that this uh, this drug may buy her 10 months it might buy her 12 months, maybe a little more. And a lot of people say, oh, 10 months, 12 months, is it worth it? But Jim, all the research is happening in this space. Talk about that. So Tori mentioned letrozole, and a study found that with letrozole alone, the progression-free survival, that is, where the disease doesn't get any worse, is 10 months. But with Ibrantz combined with letrozole, it's 20 months. So you're basically buying an extra 10 months. And during that time, tremendous strides are being made in oncology, on research on cancer drugs. And we're in a golden age of oncology right now. We're going to see things in the next few years that you just would not believe. And so I think that thanks to Ibrantz and other drugs like it, Tori really has a chance where previously she might not have had any kind of chance. And that's the good news, that scientists are at work right now in our nation's drug companies, the NIH, all over the country at universities. And Jim, thanks as always for trying to clear up some things and bringing us stories like this. This was a, this was a powerful one, Jim. And Jim Glassman is who we're talking to. He's our health editor here at Our American Stories. Our What Happens When series today featured Tori Geib and What Happens When You Get Diagnosed with Cancer at the age of 30. Thanks for all you do, Jim. Thank you, Lee. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And to capture all that we do on this subject, go to ouramericannetwork.org and look for our What Happens When series. And every once in a while, every couple of weeks, we're going to be giving you another hour and another hour to try and get you to understand and teach you a little bit more about our complicated, complicated health care system.
that's what I thought Me and Sue That died too Why are we playing this again? We are playing this because this is awesome. the music. This is the music segment where we disagree about everything, <laughs> as anybody will do when they talk about their most privately and closely held musical passions. And this is one of mine. I love Neil Diamond, and people look at me funny when I say that, as Jesse is right now. He's mortified. I thought you didn't like it. That's why we're going to come in and kind of laugh at it. No, I actually love Solitary oh Man. Oh my gosh! And I hate coming to America. Huh. <laughs> That's interesting. Now, I don't like the production of this because this was laced in the 60s. But when you strip it down, it's a really, it's a great song. And that's what we, you know, what's always fun about music is, you know, Elvis can be great. Then Elvis is in the sweet human jumpsuit and he sounds crazy. And depending on where you enter Elvis's life, you'll look at another guy and go, what were you thinking? <laughs> and this was, I think, the case with Neil Diamond. And so we were having a random discussion about music, about well, Hengler's obsession with Dave Matthews, it's, a, it's rather strange. He says he's had religious epiphanies at Dave Matthews concerts. Everyone out there is saying, Lee strange for feeling that way, because it's, it's normal. It's normal. And Jesse just doesn't understand any of it, because he doesn't get Dave Matthews. And all he does when you say Dave Matthews is he does that famous Jesse grunt. Uh, uh, that's it. You're not going to hear another word from him. Uh. And we're not sure what Alex likes because he, he, he loves Creed and then says, I'm sorry, right after he says it. Everybody's got those guilty pleasures. They just tell you know, It's true. Admit. What's yours, Ed? We don't know your guilty pleasures. Come clean. Now, come clean. You've got one. Spice Girls? Spice Girls. Come you know on. What? You know what? Uh, you're getting closer. I'm trying to figure it out. Uh, who do, I, I, I like Taylor Swift. I, I would never buy her albums, but I think she's talented and a good role model, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, but that's not so terrible. That's not so terrible. I mean, Ryan Adams just recorded that Taylor Swift record. He's cool. So, you know, she's sort of kind of cool. And you got, you know, you got kids, too. Yeah, I just can't think of too much crap that I actually do enjoy. But, uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, what he's saying is that we actually enjoy garbage, but he can't. You have to be aware of what other people think of it. It's not you consider it crap. Like for me, I know other people consider air supply to suck. I like air supply. Oh, that's painful. Making love out of nothing at all? That's great. It's stadium rock. (laughs) Stadium rock. 2 a.m. I'm drunk again. It's heavy on my mind. Stop mumbling, Dave. Stop mumbling. That's nice, though. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, hey, look, we have our favorite concerts, and we have our worst concert experiences. And so that's what we really have to dig into here. And uh, worst concert experience, Edwards. You're getting you're revved up to see the show, oh, man, was, and they come out, and they just That was stink. easy. Uh, Peter Frampton was the worst show I think I've ever seen in my life. And why? Not only was it just sounding out of key, and it was just boring, and his opening act, who was Buddy Guy, was ten times more talented than he was. Of course. Before his set, he came out and whined at the audience not to take his picture. Because the the show previously, I forget where it was, somebody was taking his picture, he told him to stop, and the guy kept taking pictures, so the guy ripped his iPhone out of of his hand and threw it (laughs) backstage. It caused caused a a little snuffle in in the news. It was in the news. Ugh. And so, so he, said, he got up on stage for a half hour and told us why he didn't want people taking his picture. 
Oh, that's great. So you're getting lectured at a concert. Yeah, so I started taking this picture, and you know, his guitar <laughs> player shaking his head at me. So then my wife and I and the people we were with, we just turned our backs to him and sat there <laughs> on the lawn with our backs to him doing the whole show. And but, everybody takes pictures. I mean, you spend your entire life trying to be somebody up on a stage and get your image out there and be a rock star, heaven forbid, and somebody's going to take your picture and you're going to whine about it like a little girl. It's crazy. I, I mean, no, Buddy Guy was amazing. Oh, yeah, He, he was only allowed to play for like a half hour because... Little prissy boy, uh, Peter Frampton, <laughs> had to come out there on, on stage with his sequins pants and, and those little rivets on it. It was, just, it was so stupid. And this was an intimate show where it was the Brit Festivals in Oregon where, you know, there's nothing between you and the stage. It's just the right. grass and the stage. But yep. He had to have these big old metal barriers up there, like these six foot tall metal. To protect them from you crazy yeah, fans. Yeah, to protect us from, you know, this, this little tiny hippie festival kind of a thing. And it was just, man. I'll yeah. never, never again. Sorry. Yeah, and by the way, Frampton was this gigantic star. Yeah. Frampton Comes Alive was this gigantic record, and he was this sex symbol, and he was in movies, and then he was nobody, which has got to be really painful. Hengel, your worst concert experience, or do you just love all of them? I, I was sitting there thinking, like, and yeah, I pretty much did because I don't, I don't commit unless I know, you know, it's going to be good stuff, but. I would have to say that the opening band for um, GNR was Soundgarden, and it was beyond awful. Guns N' Roses. GNR is yeah. Guns N' Roses yeah. for you non-Guns N' Roses fans. GNR. <laughs> yeah. S. You didn't say Soundgarden. You should have said S. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Soundgarden. Right. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Mine was Johnny Cash, biggest disappointment in my life. Wow, I've seen him a couple of times, and he was just terrible. But then I saw him when he was good, and then that was one of the great nights of my life. And he's your favorite. He is, but what I'm saying is sometimes you go to see yeah. your favorite. Led Zeppelin, I mean, I saw them in Madison Square Garden. It was terrible. It was in, incomprehensibly bad. And then I saw him again t- two or three years later, and it was incomprehensibly good. Yeah. Stevie Ray Vaughan, incomprehensibly bad when he was on drugs. Then I saw him on the Instep tour just before that helicopter crashed and he died. Best show, one of the best shows I've ever seen. How about a show? How about like a, a group you didn't like, but then you saw them live and then you liked them instantly? Oh my goodness. Uh, there's a bunch of. Mine was Metallica. Like I couldn't stand Metallica. And then I went to a show. I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Now um, I can't stand them anymore again, but a lot of the, such is life. Some of the country acts, that's what did it. Lone Star Cafe hooked me to George Jones. Uh-huh. It got me going. Uh, got me going on a bunch of people. And then the, the Pink Floyd. I never liked Pink Floyd till I saw him. Wow. Wow. Yep. And Prince. I didn't like Prince at all till I saw <laughs> Prince. And Prince may have been the greatest showman I've ever seen in my life. Better oh. than James Brown. And I saw James Brown. And James Brown had nothing over Prince. Wow. So yeah. Wow. What about, what about you, you, you gentlemen over there? John, best show. <laughs> best show? Um, man, what we entered with. Neil Diamond. Just the energy in the, in the stadium. <laughs> the wise, wise but, man. I mean, that was, it was amazing. If the whole crowd together singing every song, I mean, it was amazing. Worst concert? Yeah. Pretty easy. Uh, I, it was Paul Simon and Bob Dylan together. Oh, wow. And Dylan was horrible. You couldn't even understand what he was saying. Paul Simon, on the other hand, good show, but yeah. they were playing together, and oh, it was amazing. That's rough. And uh, we're going to go out with some... Neil Diamond, just for Jesse. Just <laughs> for Jesse. And Alex, the, you love Creed. We need to say no more. I will have to leave on that note. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Just goofing off here for a segment, just like you do so often in your life. More after these messages. Those horns sound like flatulence. <laughs>
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers series. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings us a fascinating conversation with someone whose name we've bumped across a couple of times in our storytelling, and it wasn't about his personal story. It was about his mission to help others with their stories, with their dreams. First, we heard this gentleman, Mike Kaiser's name, in our celebration of the extraordinary teacher, Marva Collins, who got tired of the indifferent public school system where she was teaching in Chicago's West Side and started her very own school in her own house with a mere $5,000, the entirety of her life savings. And Mike, well, he ended up being her biggest financial supporter. And we heard about him a second time in our celebration of Chick Evans, one of the greatest golfers ever who took all of his tournament winnings and gave them away to economically disadvantaged caddies so that they could go to college, unlike him. Chick actually had to drop out of Northwestern University because he couldn't afford it. And Mike has since raised tens of millions of dollars for his Evans Scholarship Program that continues to this day, and he's changed the lives of over 10,000 caddies. And Alex was recently in Chicago, his hometown, where Mike also lives, and wanted to get his own American Dreamers story And I also know Alex wanted one of those crazy good Chicago-style Italian beef sandwiches. Take it away, Alex. We always start off, Mike, talking with everyone about their very first job as a kid. Do you remember what it was, what you made? Did it help you get to where you are today? Uh, My very first job was working around our house in East Aurora, New York, which was imperative. It was not paid. It was my house. My father and mother said, you will be doing weeding today. You will be doing lawn mowing tomorrow, starting at age four. Four and for no money? You try to push back about the money part of it? I don't think so. I think, you know, this was just, I was part of a family, and the expectation was we would do yard work. I and my three brothers all work as our uh, contribution to the family. Jeez, now I sound like some ungrateful schmuck. Young Mike started working outside of the home, too, as a caddy at a golf course. And while his dad loved tennis because it was a compact game time-wise, Mike loved golf because it was not. With the future English major poetically proclaiming, if you are a kid or a kid at heart, that's the Tom Sawyer beauty of it. It takes a long time to play. During the summers, you could bet that Mike was doing one of only three things, sleeping, golfing, or caddying. And because the latter was manual labor outside of the home, they had to pay him for it. But... Do you remember what kind of you got paid as a caddy? Uh, I was in the dollar, dollar fifty for eighteen range. That's how old I am. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm interested to see to calculate what that would be in today's dollars. Uh, probably not a lot. Well, I did that calculation when I got back to my smart machine, and it told me that it was the equivalent of eight to twelve dollars today. Eight to twelve dollars for four sweaty hours of work. He was paid. Two to three dollars an hour, not even close to our government's mandated minimum wages today. But the experience would turn out to be much more valuable than the minimum wage. It was price less, as you'll see later. Skip forward a few years, Mike then got married to the love of his life, Lindy, when he was 22 and she was 19. 
And when he graduated from Amherst College, she and everyone else in his life had their own opinions about what he should do with that life. So tell me about, she wanted you to go to Harvard Business School, but you chose another route. She and my dad both thought that Harvard Business School was the better choice between starting a greeting card company in Chicago, we knew nothing about greeting cards and nothing about business, or going to Harvard Business School. Um, I and my partner, Phil Friedman, both thought that uh, he didn't want to go back to law school. So really, as an avoiding school move, we started recycled paper products. And my father in particular was apoplectic. Being a Wharton graduate, he thought, if you're going to go into business, you should go to business school, and Harvard's the best, so of course you'll go there. And when I told him that uh, starting a greeting card company was the choice I made, he ended up, uh, he didn't criticize it verbally. He made it clear that in his body language that that was the wrong choice, but he said, I'll support you. And ended up making a $5,000 loan to me and basically gave me the simple advice of make it grow. Here's $5,000, there won't be any more, make it grow. And you put how much of your own money into it? I put $500 uh, in and Phil put 500 in. There ain't nothing like the motivation to prove your old man wrong. But the idea itself sounds pretty simple and compelling. Folks might like to buy greeting cards that come from 100% recycled paper to help the environment and feel good about being a good steward. But ever hear of Hallmark? They only have $4 billion of revenue a year and 16,000 employees. And you, you who launched this company in a single-bedroom apartment with Mike working out of a closet, you have nothing, nothing but an idea. Were you scared of, you know, there's these existing huge players out there in the industry. When you take on such big players, doesn't it seem to... That's why I, that you're just going to get crushed. All the advice we got, not just from my father, but everyone we talked to in the business in Chicago, said, you're, "It's a killer business. You will, you won't, you won't make it." There were five giants who had over ninety percent of the market, and hundreds of little card companies. That sounds like fun. Running a little card company your whole life and most likely not making it at all. So how did they break through? When I asked Mike this, he said one person's name. And it wasn't his or his partners, the founders of the company. And he said her name over and over and over again. Here's time number one. The genius, Sandra Boynton, was basically the market changer. Time number two. She did whimsical cartoons with very clever messages. Time number three. And she, with her artistic style, remade greeting cards in the course of the next 15 years. Time number four. Eventually, because of our genius, Sandra Boynton, and how well her cards sold. And time number five. She was head and shoulders in terms of popularity above all the competition, which is hundreds of companies. Woo, talk about praise. To give you a flavor of how her card stood out from the competitions that had become stale and boring. And you shop for cards before and know which ones I'm talking about. Here's Mike describing Sandra's most famous card. The one she's best known for was picture a hippo, a bird, and two sheep um, cartoonishly uh, displayed on the front of a greeting card. And the message was hippo, birdie, two U's. E-W-E-S being sheep. Get it? 
All right, it's one of those things you really got to see, but I will try to rectify that for you now. <coughs> All right. Hippobody to use. Hippobody to use. Oh, no, God! Please, no! No! All right, get it now? You better. This is the last time I'm ever singing on this show, and a lot of people got it. Literally got it. That particular card sold tens of millions of copies. And Sandra Boynan, someone who couldn't face the prospect of waitressing any longer, decided to design cards and with the help of recycled paper greetings, sold between 50 to 80 million cards every single year. Okay, so Sandra Boynan definitely deserves some credit here. Yeah, you could say that. But this example also shows the humility of capitalists like Mike Kaiser. A free market speaks, and it spoke that it loves her. And Mike respected that market and empowered her. And when we come back, more of Mike Kaiser's story here on Our American Stories. And as always, this segment is brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And you can find out more about them at Defend Main Street. Dot com and Job Creators Network is dedicated to making life easier for small business owners across this country who are saddled and burdened by excessive taxes and regulations. And they're always trying to make it easier for small businesses to grow into big ones. And we're hearing a classic American story here, a guy who didn't want to go to college, or that is grad school, and he wanted to just, well, prove his dad and probably a whole bunch of naysayers that they were just wrong about wanting to enter this thing called the card business. When we come back, more with Mike Kaiser's story here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and we continue with Mike Kaiser's story. And when we left off, he was giving a lot more runway to the creative force behind this small but growing and growing rapidly card business. What I especially love about this story was that it was not just Sandra Boynton. Before Recycled Paper Greetings, there were a limited number of jobs out there for card artists. With the five major players with over 90% market share, having just a few folks on staff, and everyone else was left out in the cold. And Recycle Paper Greetings decided to change this and create a whole new market for all of these artists, telling the world, feel free to submit your work, we'll pick the best ones, and you'll get paid according to how many you sell. 
Their belief was that they could get a higher level of creativity from widely scattered freelance artists than a couple of people in a single location. And just think about this. It enabled moms who wanted to stay home to now be able to, to work a few hours while their kids were napping or at school and get paid for it. Now, getting paid requires first getting some shelf space in stores, which is a brutal fight. And so I asked Mike how they did it. How'd they get Sandra's cards seen at all? What Phil and I did is uh, measure how fast her cards sold. That was our marketing edge. Most buyers would look at her cards and say, oh, they're cute, and not much further. We measured how well she sold, which is how I know we, were, we could sell a dozen a day at three stores around the country. And that's what we took to the stores, that we could outsell a typical Hallmark card 10 to 1. And that got us tests. So really, you can outsell them 10 to 1. We'll give you 4 feet. And then by measuring, we, we proved that we were worth 8 feet or 12 feet. So genius plus analytics, that was our success. Beating the giant 10 to 1, that is just crazy. But people were going crazy over these cards. Literally, right before my interview with Mike, I was getting together with my friend Tony Saliba, and he was telling me how in his single days he would buy 26 different cards from recycled paper greetings at a time, stuff them in a drawer, and then send different ones out to different women who he was in pursuit of. And the women loved them. Recycled paper greetings intentionally put out off-color cards that were satirical, hip, and irreverent. In essence, they made cards that could be loved. And my personal favorite is one that says, always fart, never apologize. Thanks for teaching all of life's most important lessons. Happy Father's Day. (laughs) And as the father of two young girls, it is my goal to get that card one day. They were so successful that the biggest players actually copied them and launched what they called alternative card lines. For recycled paper greetings, though, it's just what they called normal. And for Mike Kaiser and his team of many, they grew that company into the third largest card sellers in America. And with this success, Mike now had the capital to pursue his highest passion, creating something old links sand-based golf courses like St. Andrews in Scotland in an America that seems obsessed with what's new. And the most famous golf resort Mike's created, Bandon Dunes, is nowhere even close to a public airport. To put a finger on it, the resort on the Oregon coast is a four and a half hour drive from the Portland airport. Now, why would anyone want to put themselves through that when they could just fly to Florida or Arizona? And where it wouldn't rain on you either, unlike everyone's perception of Oregon. I thought it was interesting, your friends telling you to do market research and your, your response to that. Yeah, all my friends, uh, including my dad, said, uh, well, it's sort of dicey building a golf course in the middle of nowhere. Why don't, you get a, get a, why don't you hire a market research company to tell you the chances, tell you what you should do? And I said, I, I'm not going to do that. That'll be a waste of money. They'll tell me it's too far away from any city to uh, even think about investing in a, in a Lynx golf course. Elsewhere, Mike has said, there's no need to spend $50,000 for someone to tell me there's no market. I know there's no market. I'm creating a market. The second time, 
Mike's created a market. You you also had a quote saying, I never thought we'd make money on this course. And True. If that's the case, why would you do it? Uh, because I was creating something beautiful where I was improving on nature. And can you expand on that? I read an, another quote that I just loved of honoring the land and making sure that you guys don't violate it. And it's, it I think to most people it sounds very foreign for capitalists to and, put out such beautiful words as that. Uh, well, that's the attraction. I mean, to everyone likes the beach. I mean, everyone goes to the seashore for vacation. So you sort of know that sand dunes are pleasing based on your own experience. If you accept that uh, golf course architecture can have a light touch on nature, I think, uh, I think the best architects enhance nature, not uh, intrude on it. So they can literally they know, just stand there over the land and kind of see naturally how it lays itself out. And well said, ex exactly. They, they find natural holes and do as little as possible to the existing landscape. And they just uh, lay in gently and sensitively their 18 holes. And the end result is um, a landscape at least as beautiful as it was before we came. And in my opinion, from a golf point of view, even more beautiful. The one problem I had with this interview is that Mike makes it all sound just so easy. And so I had to press him on it. What's fascinating, Mike, is you make it all sound so simple. I've read some interviews where you're like, I need a great location, I need a great architect. Um, I need sand dunes. Yeah, I need ocean, I'm, sand dunes, and a great architect. And then I'm done. And it, it sounds so simple. Is it I, really that simple? And why aren't people copying you? It is that simple. Uh, I have no idea why they're not copying me because it is that simple. Sometimes simplicity can be the hardest thing to copy. At least folks make it so. They make it harder than necessary to feel like they've earned that paycheck. But it's hard to argue with the power of Mike's simplicity. Six, six of his golf courses are among the top 75 in the world. And on a much more local and personal level, he's changed towns in the lives led within them. Before Bandon Dunes arrived, Bandon, Oregon was a sleepy little town of 2,500 people, as Mike put it, and it was struggling. So fishing was down, timber was dead, and along came Bandon Dunes Golf Resort, which now numbers five golf courses and six restaurants, and between caddies and employees, over 1,000. 1,000 employees, and the town has grown to over 3,000 people a larger base of taxpayers to support its schools and infrastructure. We then talked about one of those types of employees, the one that Mike himself was. And talk, well, let's talk about caddies. I mean, it seems everything you do kind of goes against the grain, and it's almost successful because it goes against the grain that people can't find this anywhere else. Almost the fact that it's in the middle of nowhere, people like that, you know, escapism and, and going out there and, Talk about that as you will, but also with caddies. You seem to be going against the grain where people are, you know, shutting down caddy programs. More people are doing carts or, you know, even at country clubs, you know, people try to golf in the afternoon to avoid caddies. And, I mean, you know all the trends here. Why, why are you going against this? Um, our slogan is uh, Bannon Dunes. Golf is where you can play golf as it was meant to be. And golf in Scotland, birthplace of golf. It has always been a walking sport. I mean, they've been playing golf at St. Andrews since the 15th century well before golf carts were invented. So I've always thought, I've been to Bandon, I've been to, sorry, 
Ireland and Scotland many times and love the camaraderie of between the caddies and the players. Um, to me, it's definitely a walking sport. And that was uh, what we decided to make Bannon Dunes, which, which certainly made it even more speculative. All the, ex all the consultants that I consulted with said, you can't make it without golf carts. And if you expect people to pay another $100 for a caddy, um, you're sorely mistaken. 85% of our rounds at Bannon Dunes are with caddies. People desperately want the old school, even if they didn't know it and wouldn't have told a market research company that. And you're hearing the voice of a true entrepreneur. Luckily for all of us, Mike Kaiser didn't go to Harvard and didn't go to that business school and that graduate school. And especially if you're a golfer, I'm not. My brother is. And I got to tell him about this course and get him out to the most beautiful part of Oregon. That southern part of Oregon is spectacular. When we come back, Mike Kaiser's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, our American Dreamers series, brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And we're featuring the story of Mike Kaiser, the co-founder of Recycled Paper Greetings, which sells off-color greeting cards made from 100% recycled paper. And he's the co-founder of over a dozen Lynx-style golf courses, six of them, six of them ranked among the top 75 in the world. Crazy. Back to Mike's story. Mike Kaiser's newest golf course, Sand Valley, follows the same model. It's in Wisconsin and in the middle of nowhere. Two and a half hours from Milwaukee and four hours from Chicago. And it's already changing lives, too. I couldn't believe that you have caddies driving from Madison, which I believe is an hour and 45 minutes away to Canada. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe that as well. We, we are in the poorest county in Wisconsin, Adams County. And we weren't sure if there are enough people there to staff our resort. When we had a caddy call, I'll, I'll call it, in early May, 200 primarily high school kids, but a lot of teachers as well and retirees, 200 people turned out to become caddies. Our list of caddies is now 150 of those 200 have actually continued to come every day and to caddy for all the, all the people who were there. Why would someone drive, though, an hour and 45 minutes each way to caddy there? And even more, a lot of moms and dads are doing this for their high school kids. Um, f uh, f because it's a job, and there are, as far as I can tell, no one else, there are no other jobs in Adams County other than a little bit of farming. So this is an opportunity for their kids to find out what work is. Yeah, it seems to. Right? Uh, if I were a kid, I'd love to do it just for, I'm sure, the network, right? Imagine catting for all these. Yeah. Guys, I've, I've told Ray Dalio's story on our on our show, the most successful headphone trader ever, and he, he, was started, he from, started from caddying. And it, his, his the golfers he was playing with were talking about stocks, and he says, I want to be able to talk with these guys. Yeah, we see that already in Wisconsin. I mean, we've only been open for six weeks. And these, cad, these caddies have learned the jargon because they get a different person every day and a different type every day, and they learn, most of all, to sell themselves. They understand that they need to know the caddy stuff, how to read putts and how to give advice that's sensible. And the better job they do, the more they make. Sort of capitalism 101. This is so true, but we don't tend to think about golf courses in this way. 
And we also have a misperception about another aspect of Mike's life that I had to ask him about. My former boss loves playing abandoned. And I told him that you were a fellow conservative. And we don't do a political show, by the way. It's all storytelling. But I think this is an interesting point. And he couldn't believe that you were a conservative given your company's recycled paper greetings. And he just assumed. He didn't Yeah, they know they pe- people and, put you in buckets. Yeah, and talk about that misconception that people have about conservatives and the environment. I see that large. Uh, we be, we've become, begun a conservation effort in Wisconsin that land-wise is a lot bigger than the land we're building golf courses on. It's 7,000 acres. Now, most people who would hear about that would think that I'm a conservationist and therefore couldn't possibly be a conservative. And I equate conservation with land stewardship, which has no ideology. Going back to my dad, who's who've always thought you'd leave the campsite better than when you found it, yeah. I feel that that approach is uh, sort of without ideology. And I believe you're a Christian, Mike, right? So that's, I mean, that stewardship is very much a Christian principle. Yeah, very much. Yeah, keeping things, being a good land steward. Talk about it with recycled paper greeting, though. I think most people just don't think through, look, if I want to be in business long term, I need the trees to exist. So I'm not going to mull down all the trees and have no, you know, supply source long term. It's literally in your self-interest to protect the environment. Yeah, and even more, and just as much, yeah, protecting the environment is neither conservative nor liberal. It's just common sense and fits in with stewardship. And uh, as part of the whole capitalistic system, we, we identified, we thought that 100% recycled paper would have a consumer interest. So we didn't think of it as liberal. We just thought it was, it was the differentiating aspect of our greeting cards. I then asked Mike about a whole other type of stewardship, perhaps the most important type of stewardship in his life. Your kids are now involved with you on the, on the golf business. My two, two, my, uh, my two sons are involved in the golf business. And talk about um, how they are as people and were you concerned that your wealth could deteriorate their childhood and, and deteriorate their hard work and how have you prevented that from happening? Uh, I'd say the biggest thing is uh, my my wife of 50 years, Lindy and I, um, didn't think it made any sense to uh, have lavish lifestyle. So all four of my kids did not have a lavish lifestyle. Our favorite vacation was hiking in the Adirondacks, which is hardly lavish. We stayed away from first-class air travel and first-class hotels. Uh, uh, Identified hard work as the, the number one thing that we wanted to impart to our kids just like our parents did to us, and that's how we brought them up. That's very interesting I, that you would stay at not at first-class hotels. I could see people flying coach, but not staying at a first-class hotel seems beyond what most people would do. We did in a few cases, but generally we went yeah. hiking in the Adirondacks. That's where, that's where we would reune with my brothers and father and mother every summer. So if you ask my kids what was their favorite vacation, they would say the one we did every summer with uh, Pap and Maymay. Yeah. Do you think they have a sense now of what really matters in life? I do. I think uh, all four of my kids picked up the right things, that hard work is uh, the purposeful life that you're seeking. Yeah. Mike's hard work has translated into a lot of money that's in his name, but not so much for himself. I had an amazing visit 30 years ago from a Christian insurance salesman. And his concept was, uh, I've heard you're philanthropic, 
and I want to, by selling you insurance, I'm going to enable you to give, a, give away $5 for every dollar you spend on yourself. And I looked at him and said, what? And he did have an insurance program that I ended up not buying from him that enabled you through insurance uh, over a long timeline mm -hmm. to do just that. He, he said, that's what I do with my family. And so I, even though I didn't buy insurance from him, the concept of giving away five times what you spend on yourself was uh, eye-opening, and Lindy and I have have uh, done that ever since. I've never heard anyone mention that specific number. That's interesting. That was a, that was a salesman. He just imparted that. Had a way to do it by, you know, buying a million-dollar insurance policy to benefit, you know, a a uh, charity was his way of leveraging it. And if you, if you make enough money, it's uh, it's not something that everyone can do. But if you make enough money and spend as little as you need, yeah. it's not so hard to give away five times what you spend on yourself every year. So that's been sort of our, our guideline. Mike doesn't have to be doing this. And as you can hear, he's not mad about it either. He's fulfilled by it. Supporting the Evans Scholarship Program that provides full college tuition scholarships to economically disadvantaged caddies. And he and his bride have given over $10 million to a remarkable place called the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago. The RIC, the number one rehabilitation institute in America, which focuses on the most complex of conditions such as spinal cord injuries, traumatic brain injuries, and amputations. And their patient that most touched Mike was wounded in war in Iraq specifically. There are many miracles that walk out of there every day, but my, my favorite was uh, Eric. He was wounded, uh, wounded is an understatement. He had a terrible brain injury that uh, paralyzed him and stopped his ability to speak. And he basically looked like, a, when, I, when I first met him, I, I turned aside to my guide and said, it, 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 there's no hope, is there for Eric? He had been that way for three years, to totally paralyzed, can't move, can't speak. He could move his eyes, and that was about it. So there was not it was not clear that Eric was even there. So I said, "It's hopeless, isn't it?" And my the founder of the RIC, Henry Betts, now dead, said, "Mike, there's always hope. We have hope for every one of our patients." Eric, six months later, walked out of the RIC, resumed his uh, family life, had two more kids was able to walk up and down stairs, all from six months at the RIC. And to close, I wanted to go back with Mike to examine his relationship with someone who knew him before he was the Mike Kaiser that card buyers and golf players everywhere love and was just a Buffalo, New York boy named Mike who fell in love with a girl named Lindy. I was a senior at Amherst. She was a uh, she was just beginning freshman year at Smith. I met her the day before school started, and we got married two years later. And tell me about your your marriage, what she means to you, and any advice that you'd give to young people today about marriage. Uh, I, I, the advice I'd give is there's nothing wrong with marrying early. I was uh, 22 when I got married. Lindy was 19, and I find nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, marrying your first sweetheart. Uh, she's been my best friend ever since. And I, my advice to young people is uh, don't be afraid of falling in love early. 
as opposed to playing the field for 15 years and then rushing to marry when you're 38. Yeah, and then I, my, uh, I'm Catholic, and my priest would talk about you know you develop a lot of bad habits you know in your 20s and 30s if you're you're waiting all that that you wouldn't with with being married, but still it's still got to be especially challenging not reaching full maturation at you know age 22 marrying someone. Yeah, that's why I went in the Navy. I didn't I didn't <laughs> I didn't know what I was going to do, so I joined the Navy. And what a story. And think about it. Mike confounded the experts all through his life. The smarty pants said, don't do a card company. There are five big competitors. It's too hard. It won't work. Links, golf courses in the middle of nowhere. Ridiculous. Marrying young. Don't do that. Get married when you're older. Mike Kaiser's story. A quintessential American story. Self-made. Defying everybody. Doing it his way. This is Our American Stories. As always, Our American Dreamers segment brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network.